Hey guys, I am Roy Malloy and I am going to be talking a little bit more about some of those interesting people that we have in the periphery of our culture who are the counter-heroes, the people who did the things that really are beyond average and I think we celebrate the people who uh, contribute positive things for the same reason but these are the people who are, they've done things that... <laughs> that nobody wants let's say that and they're the counter heroes of culture and they did things that we really just can't forget um, i'm going to be talking a little bit about the book that i'm preparing for press at the moment and i'm very grateful to my editor tammy who gets all the jobs done that i don't want to do and i i more or less just send her an email with a chunk of words and i with an instruction that more or less reads make this readable and then she does her magic. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed any of my previous books, um, that, that would be Tammy you, you need to be appreciating. But um, in the, the book that I've got coming up, it's a bit of a topical book. And I pained over whether or not I would, I would commit to writing it. I, I know I wanted to. And a lot of the books that I've, I've put to publish so far have been books that I knew I wanted to write. But I, I wasn't sure how to approach them. So the Squizzy Taylor book, probably, uh, it's a good example. It's been the highest selling book I've ever published. Um, and I'm so grateful to everybody that's purchased a copy of Squizzy. Um, and it's, it's, honestly, it's exceeded any hope that I ever had for it. Um, but I, I was pretty scared about the concept of writing it. I, I approached it, I don't know, I, I got a bit of a, a run-up where I was researching things that led into it before I even researched it, if that makes sense. So I began by researching Fitzroy in that time and place, and then uh, what it meant to be a sly grogger, and trying to find newspaper articles that just talked about the typical interactions that the law had with people who were making illegal alcohol, same time period, uh, gambling, two-up schools, anything I could find that really leaned on what I was probably going to uh, discover with Squizzy Taylor. And then I really went directly for the content about Squizzy. And I think the same has to be said for this book. So the book that I'm looking to publish, um, I will be making full internet announcements about it with the first real samples on Australia Day, which is coming up. Um, and the book is about, is about caste. It's about uh, race and skin colour and prejudice. Interestingly, my family... Um, has heritage that is indigenous, and as far as I understand, our our background in in country goes back to my great great grandmother who was um, born in a place I, I guess close to Ballarat. We have no record of that, obviously, and um, her mother was born at a time probably before there was any white influence in that neck of the woods. The tribal name is Jajawarung, and the people who live there are considered to be called the Jara. So when I came to this project, it, um, it had a personal aspect to it because my whole life I've watched, um, I've watched Australian culture and how it addresses uh, Indigenous people. But also, um, I grew up in, uh, in a number of different Asian countries. My parents were extremely brave in their own career and they put their hand up to be uh, missionary and, in some ways, disaster response workers in a number of Asian countries. I've had my mum as a guest on the podcast, and I got great responses from it. You guys lost your minds for my mum when I interviewed her about the work that she did at the Kowloon Walled City in Hong Kong in the 1980s. And, and 
I, I guess growing up in Hong Kong and we spent time in China, we went to India, Sri Lanka. I remember being in the Philippines, Singapore. Um, we, we spent all of my childhood really more or less in Asian countries. Um, it gave me a perspective on what it means to be Australian because, I, guys, I've got to tell you, this country is incredible. The idea that I can go down the street and I can buy eight to 12 different nationalities of food all in one area, it's, it's globally unheard of. Now, for my American listeners, I love you guys, but when I was in California uh, only a couple of years ago, my options for food right there and then were burgers, pizzas, fries, and occasional Mexican, right? And, and even then Tex-Mex. It's not even good Mexican. Okay, so i I got to say, I am all about diversity, and Australia is the greatest melting pot of all. So in saying that, uh, I, I have relation to a black. Um, I have uh, a number of family who are non-black representing Indigenous, so it means that they're white, but they are also, they identify as Indigenous. I've got a very famous brother who is an incredible musician, and he is, uh, Scott Darlow is uh, one of the greatest Indigenous musicians of a generation. Uh, please do look up Scott Darlow. He's, he performs, I believe, under the name just D A R L O W, um, and he's you'll love you'll thank me for this and buy all his songs on YouTube on uh, what's it called, you know, iTunes or any of the platforms where he makes money because he still owes me about fifteen dollars from the early nineteen nineties and I I never forgive I never forget, <laughs> but um. The book that I'm publishing is called The Colour of Crime. It falls under the Dawn of Crime series, and it looks at instances where the nationality of someone's... Uh, well, the nationality of the person becomes a feature in the case. In a couple of the instances, uh, I've also included cases where the person themselves are of a non-white or... You know, when I say white, I mean... Really, in Australia, the majority were white Europeans, so more often than not, Anglo-Saxons. If it had been up to John Pascoe Faulkner, who was a horrific racist, I'm calling it, uh, he he began that white Australia policy, where he just wanted uh, Anglo-Saxons and the right kind at that. Uh, even though he was he himself wasn't a special guy, but he wanted white Anglo-Saxons, and. He was absolutely in favour of slave labour, and I'll be talking about that in the book. And I'm going to re- really be calling out some horrific racists that we have put on top of pedestals and named towns after. I mean, John Pascoe Faulkner, and I'll, I'll give you this as a, uh, a quick preview of the book. John Pascoe Faulkner has Pascoe Vale named after him, has Faulkner named after him. There's a statue of him in the city, and I... Got to say, me myself, I personally am not a big fan of ripping down statues. Even if it was Hitler, or one of the well, okay. Next point, I guess, when it's a dictator and there's a million statues of Lenin or Saddam Hussein, I think it's fair to keep one as an example. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we need to rip them all down. But when you've only got one, and there is just one statue that I'm aware of, of John Pascoe Faulkner in the city. It was on Collins Street for a long time. I don't even know where it is now. I think they moved it when they renovated the building that's there. On the corner of, I'm going to say, Collins Street 
and oh I couldn't tell you I can't tell you the name of the street that's on but anyway it was there and there's a, a bronze statue of him he was a horrific racist no question about it and he advocated for slaves in Australia he was doing it at a time just after um, slavery was abolished so the abolition happened and instantly thereafter, all the people who would have been slave drivers, slave owners, they, they came up with this kind of idea called indenturing, where you, you, know, you, you buy prisoners from another country, and a country that's already really poor. So, in his case, he would have been looking at Calcutta, and um, he, he was looking at bringing into the country prisoners who he could make tend sheep or just do terrible jobs where the person that has paid for them to come here gets all the all the benefits of their hard work and they get to basically breathe and eat that's it work breathe and eat uh, call it what you want it's slavery right these people could never build a life for themselves they just get enough means to survive so that that's going to be in the book i'm going to be talking a little bit about him and also a few other very famous names that we have whole cities and towns named after who were completely okay with slavery in Australia. So the book that I've, I'm going to be publishing, it'll, it'll be out, I believe, in March. And um, there's some fascinating cases, guys. Um, things that defy belief. Like, I'm, honestly, I've been researching some of this stuff, and I, I personally am shocked that in my... Not my generation, like, even not far behind my generation. I was born in 1975, so the year is 2021, if you're listening to this in the future, and uh, I'm, fi- I'm 45 years old right now, and I like being 45. It's, it feels right for me. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm meant to feel like I want to be younger or older, but I like being 45. And um, I know that just before my lifetime, there were people being arrested, literally in Australia being arrested and doing hard time because they dared to sleep with somebody who wasn't the same colour. Now, we go, oh my God, that can't be, but it absolutely is. And when, when I say hard time, I'm talking, they get, they get sentenced to jail, and they get sentenced to what's called hard labour. So that means that they wake up, and uh, are woken up really early, and they get given a really, really long day in a milling yard in the direct sunlight, breaking rocks. Why do you say? Look at your train lines. You're looking at bluestone, and that bluestone in, in Victoria, particularly, and this case, one of the cases is in West Australia, one of the cases is in Queensland. Oh, look, I don't know if it's the same there. I've got to be honest. I, I now realise that I'm probably talking about Victorian crimes, but it's hard labour. Hard labour in Victoria is when you're given a great big chunk of bluestone from the Footscray Quarry or the North Melbourne Quarry. A lot of that western part of Victoria is based on just solid bluestone. And um, they're given a great big chunk of bluestone to break into rocks for train lines. West Australia, um, look, I guess there's any number of things they did for, uh, you know, hard punishment. But it was a horrific thing to have to live through for six months because you stood in court and you said, I love that woman even though she's black and I want to marry her. And then you get six months in jail. I mean, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're going, oh, that's, that's how it should be. Oh, my God, please delete me. Delete me now. <laughs> Stop following me. I'm, uh, as I'm saying this, I'm still shocked. I've known about this for six months. I still can't digest 
that we were ever that country, and we were, guys, we were that country. Um, and I, 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 as I write these pieces, I'm writing about two groups of minorities who weren't minorities by number. The Chinese are one, and I, I talk a little bit about um, a civil insurrection that should be considered a civil war in some ways. And it was in a place called Lambing Flats. It's now called Young in uh, New South Wales. And Young is a beautiful town. If you get a chance to go through there, stop at Young. It is absolutely magnificent. It's got great architecture, incredible uh, boutique businesses. But Young was, uh, it was the, the center point for this flash of hatred and intolerance, frustration, poverty, anxiety, and rage that, that all happened around the gold rush. And not long before it had been the Eureka Stockade. So by the 1860s, uh, the early 1860s, Young became this place where a lot of Chinese miners were heading to make their fortunes. The Chinese, though, are incredible workers now and then. I mean, they, they have this ability, uh, maybe it's a Buddhist thing, and I, I have a little bit of an understanding of Buddhism, but uh, things like um, desire less become more is a Buddhist concept. And, and to not put yourself and your own importance so high up that you can do more um, for the people around you, you can have less personal narcissism in your life, all very Buddhist. And the Chinese Buddhists would come here and they would group together and they would live very humble, meagre lives, but they would work as a collective, whereas the, uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon, the white miners, typically only worked in small family groups of maybe a husband, a wife, a couple of kids or a brother here and there, you know. But you'd get like 20, 30 people who came from China from roughly the same area. But the way they mined, they would lift up the whole topsoil of an entire area and leave not a skerrick of gold. So they're very, very good gold miners. Whereas the, the white miners would sink a shaft and hope to get a big nugget and make it rich themselves, if that makes sense. So there was a lot of frustration that the Chinese were yielding where the white people weren't. Um, and then the horrific riots that took place in Lambing Flats that didn't just require the police. The police arrived, but not long after. You end up with sailors. Now, uh, Young is miles and miles from the sea. But sailors and police were all, and, and the military, were called out for over a year. They lived in Young just to settle the riots down. And the riots were leading to um, Chinese people being beaten and hung and tortured. Uh, I can't even describe the horrors they would have lived through. So uh, it, I, I guess the disposition of land that the Indigenous First National people went through is it would be uncomparable to anything else. You, you couldn't compare it to many other things. But the massive trauma and atrocities that the Chinese community went through after they arrived here for the gold rush. Also, really, uh, so many incredible stories. And out of that, we get one of the most incredible bushrangers of all time, and, and he features in the book as well. So I, I guess that's one of my updates for this podcast. It will be the, uh, what is it now, the fifth issue or volume of the Dawn of Crime series. So in the Dawn of Crime, we've you know covered a few uh, books that are featured. And the first two books have no real theme. They they talk about a number of different cases of different criminals that range variously from um, forgers to sly groggers to murderers to arsonists. 
But then the third issue, I, I came up with the concept of theming it, and we gave it a theme about crimes to do with uh, gender, where gender was a, a feature in the case, or at least um, you know people didn't just try the, the the case on its merits, and the media talked about all the, all the court made the gender of that person a feature of the trial. Uh, and it was called The Queerest of Crimes. Uh, and then also the fourth issue was about the gangs of Melbourne. And I, I've been fascinated for a long time with the push gangs that were in Melbourne. And a lot of people have no idea what a push gang is. Um, and that also was a huge feature. If you were in Melbourne between the 1860s, uh, no, I might even say the 1880s and 1910, push gangs were uh, a massive, massive thing. And they weren't just a you know, a passive concern that people were worried about, like the, the satanic panic or something, you know, that, that didn't actually eventuate to much. These were real things that people really encountered. Um, and so that was the, the fourth Dawn of Crime book. So this will be the fifth Dawn of Crime book, and um, I, I really hope it, it, it talks about things that challenge our understanding of what it means to be Australian. Now I'm very proud to be Australian, and I feel that being able to speak freely as an Australian is incredible. And we do have freedom of speech here. I get Americans that carry on and they, they tell me, uh, my friends who are in America, they, they talk about how proud they are about what they call their First Amendment. And that means the freedom of speech. Guys, we have freedom of speech in our Constitution. But we also have um, responsibility and accountability. If you say things that create a victim, you also have to own <laughs> the the recompense of your misdoings. So I, I think that's the, the fairest thing that could possibly exist. And I love being able to print things in this free country where we can challenge what it means to be a, multi a multicultural country and have such a wide array of cultural backgrounds in this country. Um, I celebrate every part of what it means to be multicultural in Australia today. So hopefully this book gives us the ability to question what we're celebrating in our history, um, to find some new heroes. And believe me, I've got two or three amazing people in this book that really not only need to be celebrated, but if you are listening to this and you have any idea how you get a pardon for someone for a crime that they were charged with earlier on, but is not a crime today, I'm going to have at least two people in this book that genuinely need a prime, uh, prime minister's pardon. I don't even know what you call it. I think it's called a posthumous um, exoneration or pardon. But uh, at least two incredible heroes who stood up for something that was, well, as simple as love. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I've got a huge amount of back issues in this podcast. I will be talking to some more incredible people um, and, and putting the, the interviews on this podcast in the near future. In the meantime, head over to Facebook and like my author page, which is Roy Malloy Author. And you have to put the word author in or it comes up with a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, make sure you check out my books on the internet. It's simple as um, Googling The Dawn of Crime and Roy Malloy. Thank you so much, guys, and take care.